Several years before I was born, my father was visiting a shoe shop in the centre of Northampton. He was a trainee architect and the shop was being refitted. The shop was built over the remains of Greyfriars, which was a Franciscan friary which had been dissolved in 1538. He couldn't see any members of staff, so he, he walked downstairs into the basement and hailed a man in a grey suit. But when he got to the bottom of the stairs, he couldn't find the man in the grey suit, nor could he see any exit from what was manifestly a walled-in basement. Back upstairs, he mentioned this to the manager when he found him, and the manager said, Oh, that's not a member of staff. That's a Franciscan friar. He comes in and out all the time. We call him Bob. I read Eric von Darniken's The Chariot of the Gods, which explained how the Nazca lines in the Peruvian desert were made by those same aliens who destroyed Sodom with a nuclear weapon and helped us build Stonehenge. You probably remember them from the book of Ezekiel where they came out of the north in a whirlwind of cloud and amber fire in the likeness of men. I read a book called The Atlas of the Unexplained, the Bermuda Triangle, spontaneous human combustion. Thanks to Yuri Geller, my sister and I spent a huge amount of time trying to bend spoons. <laughs> I was looking, I think, for some small hole in the fabric, a portal through which I could escape the stultifying here and now. Benny Hill, Pan's People, consulate cigarettes, another slice of Black Forest Gatto from the sweet trolley. If I'd grown up in a different kind of family, maybe I'd have escaped via the Phantom Tollbooth or Emil and the Detectives. But my mother didn't read books, and my father didn't talk about the books that he had read in case someone with a university degree quizzed him about them. That's not actually true. Or maybe it is. I have no idea what went on in my father's mind. Neither of my parents spoke about what they thought or felt which is why I got to a terrifyingly advanced stage before realising that other people had actual internal lives like I did. <laughs> Mr Phelps stopped me in the corridor one day at Dustin Eldin Junior School and said, I've noticed that you bite your nails. Is it because you worry a lot? I was horrified. A, that an adult could correctly guess what was happening inside your head and B, thought you wanted to chat about it. No, I said, I'm perfectly fine, thank you. Some children just sped through their lives like gazelles across the veld. But being alive for me was a job of work you had to do hour by hour and minute by minute. I had repeated nightmares, in one of which I was being flushed down a toilet in an antique waxed canvas diving suit with a spherical brass helmet and lead boots and... I become stuck in a very narrow section of piping and I was drowning. During one episode of Star Trek called Operation Annihilate, I ran screaming out of the house in search of my mother, who in the event of an actual alien invasion would doubtless have gone straight inside and lain down in a darkened room in the hope that it would all be sorted out when your father gets home. I had a mild case of PTSD after a Doctor Who series called The Web of Fear in which robot yetis took over the London underground on behalf of the great intelligence. For years afterwards, every time 
a tube strain stopped in a station, I would look out of the window and see, more often than not, behind my pale, reflected self, some sooty hatch in the wall. And I think, why in God's name would you build a little door there? (laughs) Protected by speeding trains and rats and darkness and electrified rails, unless you were trying to hide something that the rest of us must never, ever know about. Lo-fi provincial spookiness example number two. I'm sitting with my friend, Dennis Chipara, in the Friary Coffee Shop in the centre of Northampton, which, perhaps not uncoincidentally, also sits above the ruins of the eponymous Greyfriars. We're admiring my just-purchased copy of Led Zeppelin III, the one with the really cool revolving cover. And Dennis says, apropos of nothing whatsoever, Mr Wakefield's dead. We hadn't seen Mr. Wakefield for years since he taught us history by testing us on dates, which he read from a poorly concealed textbook which was lying inside the open briefcase on his desk and berating us for vandalising the box radiators which had in fact collapsed because of his own vast sweating bulk when he sat on them. Only later did we find out that that morning, while we were in the Friary coffee shop, he'd had a heart attack in the main school building. He'd crashed through the banisters, he'd fallen down a three-storey stairwell and died on the black-and-white checkered tiling of the school entrance hall. We make a noise when we look at the fire. We make a noise when we look at the roasting pig, and another noise when we look at the rain or the boy with the crippled hand. This is something between 2.4 million and 50,000 years ago. The experts wildly disagree, and words leave no fossils, so this is just a serving suggestion. After a while, we learn that we can make the noise for the fire, the noise for the pig, the noise for the rain, and the boy, when those objects are elsewhere. Now we have things and we have noises which summon things. We've cast a kind of diaphanous ghostly veil over physical objects. Now we can talk about the deer grazing unseen on the far side of the hill and how we'll be able to hunt them tomorrow. We can talk about the river that we crossed yesterday. We can talk about the world after we are dead. We can put ourselves in someone else's shoes. We can tell stories. We have in our mouths the tool which perhaps more than any other will help our species take over vast tracts of the planet. But evolution has struck a Faustian bargain on our behalf. We will no longer be completely present. We will no longer be completely content. We can regret the things we've done. We can regret the things done to us. We can fear events in the future that may never happen. We can imagine leading other lives. Many people are completely unaware of the way that we are divided deep down between now and tomorrow, between now and yesterday, between here and the place we want to be between ourselves and the selves that we want to be. Other people, paradoxically, find a great consolation in the fact 
that this might just be a pale reflection of some warmer, larger, more coherent reality. A third group of people find in this doubleness real horror. I know people who are haunted by spirits of the dead, more vivid and less tractable than any actual ghost. I know people who hear objects talking to them. I know people who are watched over constantly by malign presences. I have a friend who, when in a meeting of five or more people, knows that one of those people is not actually real. The rest of us who exist in that great no-man's land between unawareness and psychosis, we have to make our own accommodations with those quotidian ghosts of the dead and gone and the yet to come, the other versions of here and the other versions of us. Stories of the supernatural resonate, not just because we're afraid of those footsteps in the loft and those winter branches scratching against the window pane, but because they all touch something deep inside of us. To be human is to be haunted. You all know the story of Narcissus, how a vain young man fell in love with his own reflection and died because he couldn't tear himself away. Except you probably don't, because that's the Baudelaireized Christian version of the story. In Ovid's original, Narcissus is not vain, per se. In fact, in the beginning of the story, he does not know what he looks like. His sin is dura superbia, an unbending haughtiness which causes him to spurn all the sexual advances from a string of young women and men who want to make love to him. One of those spurned lovers goes to the goddess Nemesis and asks for her to be revenged upon him on all their behalves. He's out hunting one day. She leads him into a shady grove. He bends to drink. And of course, on the other side of the surface of the water, he sees this beautiful young man. He reaches out to caress his face. And he vanishes in the ripples. And only when he works out that he's looking at himself does he realize then that he is being punished with unrequited love for the unrequited love of all the young men and women in love with him. Falling in love with himself is not sin, it's the punishment. Rewind 20 years. Just after he's born, his father asks the seer Tiresias whether his son will lead a long and fruitful life. And Tiresias says yes. Si se son non noveret, if he does not know himself. That Latin verb, noscere, to know, has the same ambiguity that our word has. It means to recognize and to understand. If he does not recognize himself, if he does not understand himself. Fast forward back to that fateful afternoon. Fons erat nitidis argentius undis. There was a clear pool of bright silver water. Fons means a pool, a well, a spring, but it also has the meaning that it still has for us in that phrase, fons et origo, the source. Narcissus looks into the source 
and he understands himself. I don't think it's a story about vanity. I don't even think it's a story about refusing to shag someone who wants to shag you, which frankly, even for the debauched Romans, is probably a fairly minor infraction. I think it's about that veil which stands between us and that other reflected world which looks so like ours and which we yearn for, but which we can never possess. Make love, says Ovid. Keep running with the hunt. Don't get pulled aside into a shady grove. Do not lose yourself in make-believe. It was science which proved my escape for a long time. When I realized that quantum theory and relativity were both more interesting than the Bermuda Triangle and spoon bending, but also truer, you know, subject to any hypothetical future falsification, which is how they come to be truer, it was really thrilling to be taken to the edge of what we know and lean over that guardrail and look into the abyss of what we don't know and what we may never know. Now, a second. The problem is that the maths gets really gnarly after a while. Also, you never really get quantum theory or relativity. You just crank through the equations and hope the numbers come out all right in the end. Plus, something was missing. And I didn't realize what it was until we were given the selected poems of R.S. Thomas to read for English O-Level. Iago Prothec, his name, though be it aloud, just an ordinary man of the bald Welsh hills who pens his sheep in a gap of cloud. I've got some serious issues with that poem these days, you know, open bracket, see footnote, close bracket. But at the time, that line and that image bewitched me utterly. It's a poem about a Welsh hill farmer, yes, but it's also a poem about reading poetry because we are all working in that field, churning the crude earth to a stiff sea of clods. But every so often, the clouds part and we look up and we have a vision of something brighter and higher. It was mind-boggling to me. I was reading a poem that was about my experience of reading the poem as I was reading it. It's a poem, too, which understands that fundamental doubleness of the human condition. How there is something which belongs to us, but will always be kept from us, and which we will never possess. It also understands how those two things are woven together, the poetry and the self-alienation. It understands that that's where poetry and art lives and moves and has its being, trafficking from one side to another of that border between the two worlds. We write in order to raise the dead. We write to create monsters. We write so that our voices will be alive when we are dead, so that we are able to talk to people not yet born. As readers, we hover unseen while the Bennets take tea, or Steerpike lopes down one of those greasy, candlelit corridors. Every story is a ghost story. Every story is a message from the other side. Lo-fi provincial spookiness, third and final example. My paternal grandmother 
went into hospital in 1976. I don't know why. My parents didn't talk about that kind of thing either. I know that it was serious. She came home and she was recuperating. One morning, my father was driving to Milton Keynes for an important meeting. Halfway there, for reasons he didn't understand, he stopped and he turned around and he drove back to Northampton and parked outside his parents' house. His father opened the door and said, Peter, what are you doing here? My father couldn't say. He stepped into the hall. He walked upstairs. He went into his parents' bedroom. And his mother said, Peter, I knew you'd make it, and died in his arms. Thank you.